I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And we are playing with science. Today, we are talking about the most famous play in the history of American football. So okay. true. Yeah, isn't it? A play that still divides the opinions of sports fans almost half a century later. A play that is shrouded in more mysteries and conspiracy theories than a presidential election. Yet, <laughs> we can solve and explain those mysteries by using science. Oh, yes, we can. The Immaculate Reception was a moment of desperation in the final seconds of a postseason game that became the turning point in one NFL franchise's history whilst turning the other into a battle against the rest of the world that is still going on. And to bring in the physics and help unlock the core of science is Professor Eric Goff, who is a professor at Lynchburg College and the author of Gold Medal Physics and a sports writer who is in studio with us, uh, Jim Brennan. So let's get some numbers straight, shall we? Seven and six, the score. Raiders up by one point. It is the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. It's a fourth and down. There yes. are 26 seconds left. There are men on the sidelines built like mountains who are too scared to watch. This is the point of adrenaline. This is the point of fear. It's the moment you live for. It is an AFC playoff game. And then it all happens. What do we do about that, Chuck? I'll tell you what we do about it. Let's take a listen to what actually happened. Last chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by Tatum. talk about Christmas miracles, here's a miracle of all miracles. Watch this one now. Bradshaw's lucky to even get rid of the ball. He shoots it out. Jack Tatum deflects it right into the hands of Harris. And he sets off, and the big 230-pound rookie slipped away from Warren and scored. You know what? It's still. I'm sorry. I mean, this this game is God knows how long ago, but it's still exciting. <laughs> there was nothing to see. The ball bounced off a couple guys. There was nothing to be seen after that, and then suddenly there was something to be seen. Franco Harris comes out of the black, right, and just and 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 scores. It's amazing. It is really amazing. I mean. And, and, and it has divided so many people, oh, whether yes. they're Steelers or Raiders. But as I said in the introduction, there is a way for us to solve this by the <laughs> use of science. So the moment arrives, we have a ball hitting a player. Now, the argument depends on which side of the, the sidelines yeah, yeah. you're on. So, you know, the, the big controversy is, yeah. one, did the ball bounce off of... Uh, Frenchy Fuqua, uh, which would have, you know, caused one, that would have been an illegal play. Yes. And because at that time, with at the ruling. that time, yeah. the ruling would have been two offensive players touched the ball in succession. 
Therefore, the play is now dead because that's an illegal catch. Mm. That, that rule no longer exists in football. You can actually tip the ball as much as you want now. And, uh, you know, if five players tip the ball and the ball is still in the air, as long as it doesn't touch the ground, it's a live ball. You can pluck it out of the air and either run it into a touchdown or run it back for a pick six. It doesn't make a difference. But at that time, so uh, from a physics standpoint, Eric, here's the question. Is there a way to view this video from angles of incidents, uh, looking at, like you said, the ball leaving his hand at about 50 miles an hour, are there scenarios that we can break down that would tell us the likelihood, maybe not definitively, but the likelihood of who that ball really bounced off of? Well, just to give you some numbers, so the, the pass took anywhere between 1.6 and 1.7 seconds to go from Bradshaw to the, the point of contact uh, wow. with the players. Now, you got Tatum and, and Fuqua there, yep. and they're going to be moving toward the ball because what's happening is they're having to transfer some momentum from themselves to the ball in order for it to get far enough for Harris to pick it up. If they were stationary, the ball's not going to bounce far enough for Harris to pick it up. So what happens is you get the ball is going to slow down a little bit from air resistance after Bradshaw threw it. So maybe it's going about 46 miles an hour when it hits uh, the player. When it rebounds, now I'm, I'm analyzing this video frame by frame, but the video is a little fuzzy. It's a little tough to tell the angles. Hmm. It's going about 25 to 30 miles an hour on the rebound. So some of that energy has been lost with the collision. Now what happens is you got Tatum and Fuqua coming in, and they're going to hit the ball moving in the opposite direction of the ball. So they're giving it a, a good kick backwards. So that's going to give it enough of a kick to get to uh, Franco Harris coming down. Now that momentum transfer is tough to tell whether it's one or two players, how fast they're moving right before the, the impact. It could easily have been uh, just Tatum hitting the ball, uh, but it's really tough to tell from the video and even from the physics analysis whether or not uh, Frenchie Fakua had enough uh, of a play into the ball as well. So let me hold you there, Eric. There was a professor of... Emeritus at uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, John Fetkovich in 2004, analyzed this thing back to front and back again. And he used brick walls, he replicated the trajectory and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And he came to the conclusion based, and I think he uses the term conversation of momentum, which I've taken a shine to, uh, <laughs> that the ball must have bounced off of Tatum because it comes back down the field in a rather than just bouncing up because he, he he was sort of working on the fact that Fuqua goes laterally and Tatum's running towards the ball towards the ball right. so what sort of equation if that's if that's his uh, analysis and uh, research are we dealing with in terms of why the ball bounced as far as it did because Fetkovic couldn't himself replicate that sort of bounce well, the, the brick wall means the stationary target I was talking about earlier. So right. if, if it had hit a player not moving, it would not have bounced far enough for Harris to have picked it up. Mm -hmm. So what, what you need is a uh, linear momentum in the opposite direction of the football to kick it back. Right. So what, what happened was the player that's making contact with it, even though uh, Fuqua is coming in laterally, if Tatum hits Fuqua slightly before the ball gets there, he can he can direct 
Fuqua's linear momentum back toward the ball. Ah, ah so, so therein lies the rub. The fact is yes. that if the collision is with Fuqua and then Fuqua collides with the ball, you'll get that same uh conservation of momentum kicking the ball back to Franco Harris so it's it's possible that it still could have been Fuqua who hit the ball I mean it's definitely Tatum is the one responsible for the direction the ball is going to be deflected right Mm. but what's hard to tell in the video is whether he is making contact with Fuqua just as the ball is coming in gotcha so, I mean, he could, he's definitely the one responsible for the way the ball is moving, but it's hard to tell whether Fuqua came in slightly before the ball or not. Okay, okay. So now what is the, what is the Newton's Law involved in this particular? Is there an actual scientific uh, uh, term? that? What is that? Sure. So conservation of linear momentum means that uh, you add up all the little mass times velocities. So the ball has a mass and a velocity. Uh uh, Fuqua has a mass and a velocity, and so does Tatum. And as long as there's no external force at the time of that collision, uh, and we take all the other forces as being really small compared to that, the size of that collision force Mm. with the ball and the pads, uh, then the the momentum coming in has got to match what's coming out. So if ah. the balls if the ball's coming in with a certain momentum and the players you know the Tatum Fuqua combination are coming in the other direction with a certain momentum uh, that sum total's got to be the same before and after the collision. So with the ball going the other direction uh, that meant the net linear momentum was going back toward Harris. So it's almost like a Newton's cradle. In the sense, um, you've got two objects coming in at one, and then pop out the other end goes the ball into the welcoming hands of Franco Harris. Or I got that wrong. No, you have that exactly right. A Newton's cradle would have those little metal uh, yes. spheres that some of the CEOs watch when they're kind of bored. Right. And so you got the ball coming in, and it bounces off. Uh, another ball bounces off on the other end. That's that's exactly a linear momentum conservation so, experiment. You're talking about the clacking balls like uh, that sit on a desk, and one ball is on a pendulum. Yeah. They're all on a pendulum. One swings, hits three other balls that stay in the exact same position, mm-hmm. and then the fourth ball on the very end t- takes off. And then, that's it, right. and then that repeats itself back and forth, back and forth. That's that's what we're talking about here. That's yeah. right. You, you need to use some energy as well to analyze that, but that's exactly what happens. Would you, Eric, looking at it from your point of view as a physicist, as a sports fan, go with their decision on that moment? Um, sure. I mean, keep in mind the ball was also deflected uh, with a downward trajectory, so it's, it's heading toward the ground. So that makes it even tougher for the re- referees to see what's going on. Hmm. And Harris is running with a full head of steam when he gets it. I mean, if he had been five yards farther back uh, on the play, I mean, he's not going to be able to catch that ball. So, hmm. you know, he, he's at the exact right place, moving at the right speed, and when that ball collides with him, uh, he's at the right place at the right time to get it. So, you know, it's just a bang-bang play. I mean, the ball's only in the air about six-tenths to seven-tenths of a second after that deflection. That, that, you know, the referees have to divert their eyes from what's going on at the collision between Tatum and Fuqua. Now they have to follow the ball back to where Harris is, and he's already running and getting the ball. So, you know, we watch it in, in slow motion. It seems easy for us to see what's going on but you know put yourself in the place of a referee with all that chaos going on trying to follow that play it's it's a challenge absolutely yeah Yeah. six tenths of a second man that's when you when you put it that way you got to be almost superhuman to look at that and get you know a really correct call uh but with that in mind when you said when you said uh 
everything had to be in the right place at the right time for for this play to even happen. Yeah. Uh, that brings us to a clip where, you know, our own Neil deGrasse Tyson actually sat down with the quarterback of the uh, New York Jets, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and, uh, you know, asked him about this particular play. We've been trying to poll quarterbacks on their knowledge or memory of or reaction to the famous immaculate reception. Um, do you do you guys talk? Do you go in a back room and talk about that? Is it was it just a bit of inspiration? How does it land on you and your and your soul as an athlete? Um, I thought I mean it's an amazing play, and I wish that I could get some of that luck, you know, because that uh, you know it was a Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, Terry Bradshaw to Franco, um, Harris. Franco Harris. Yeah. Off of somebody's shoulder, or off the big hit, and then he catches it basically on the ground and outruns four people. And it, I mean, there's so many amazing things that had to happen exactly right for that play to work. Um, so so it, you it, candidly it, recognize the role of luck in that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if it was much of anything else. Yes. <laughs> Hence, immaculate reception yeah. rather than skillful reception. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I think that's great. We've got a current NFL player with enough about him to respect the history, even though he kind of sits on, you know what, really lucky. Right. <laughs> and speaking of luck, this is something I'd just like to ask every scientist. Do you believe in luck? No. <laughs> I have yet to meet a scientist who says, I believe in luck. Why not, man? Tell me. I mean, I know why most scientists answer yeah. this question, but I want to hear yours. Because I just find it fascinating that I've yet to meet a scientist when you say, do you believe in luck? I have not met one scientist who said, of course, who doesn't? We're constrained by the laws of physics. And uh, I mean, luck is simply what... The, the word we use for a low probability occurrence. I mean, if you win the lottery, you say you got lucky. Well, uh, that's the word you're referring to hitting a one in a 50 million shot or, or whatever the probability is. Okay. Uh, so, somebody's going to hit it uh, if, if you play all the numbers. Uh, so, I, you know, it's not a it's just luck is just the word that we're using in the, in the layman's sense to describe things that are very low probability in occurrence. Awesome. I like it. All right. So. Uh, no such thing as luck, but there is such a thing as a break. We are going to take a first one. Um, right. Two questions. Firstly, who was the head coach of the Raiders on the day of the Immaculate Reception? And mm -hmm. secondly, how many Super Bowls did the Pittsburgh Steelers win on the back of the Immaculate Reception during, only during the decade of the 70s. Mm -hmm. Right, we are going to leave you a moment to think about that. When and we, good luck thinking about that. Yeah, no, no such thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> when we come back, we will have a rather special guest by the name of Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, and we will be discussing some more science. We'll, of course, have Professor Eric Goff and Jim Brennan, who's with us in the studio, so do not go away. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing, Playing with, with Science. Science. And today we are talking about the Immaculate Reception. But before we go on to the most, probably the most important and famous play in NFL history, answers to questions I set before the break. The coach of the Raiders on the day, the man himself, Mr. John Madden, will be your answer for that one. 
And second question, how many Super Bowls do the Steelers win in the 70s post-Immaculate Reception? Count all. One, two, three, four, 74, 75, 78, and 79. Whoa. That's Steel- called a dynasty. That is definitely called a <laughs> dynasty. Called a dynasty. And the Steel Curtain was locked down for sure. And uh, Steeler Nation was born. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So that's, that's the answers to that dealt with. As I said before the break, we will have His Royal Highness Neil deGrasse Tyson joining us yes. in the show. We still have Jim Brennan with us and, of course, Eric Goff, Professor of Physics at Lynchburg College, still all in the mix. So it's a rather crowded house. The whole thing about Immaculate Reception is that it sort of contains every facet of myth, theory, legend, conspiracy theory, Absolutely. fact, science, and a little bit of sport thrown in. One of many of the conspiracy theories surrounding the Immaculate Reception is what happens after Franco Harris runs in this touchdown. That once the officials go to the dugout, the phone, and nobody knows who rang who, whether mm. it comes from the press box or from the dugout, and that there was a replay with Art McNally, the supervisor from the NFL. People say total fabrication. Others say that, you know, McNally told him, what did you see? Then go with it. Just right. get your guys together and go with it. But it's just adds another layer to the myth, to the legend, to the mystery. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, there's even one story and, you know, I'm this is, I'm sure, another fabrication yeah. where, uh, you know, one of the officials called uh, in that same press box that the phone call was to the police to see whether there are enough cops to get us out of here. Exactly. Yeah. Like, we're, are there enough cops to get us out of here? Well, you got six. We got six cops to get you out. Oh, well, then it's six points for Pittsburgh. So, you know. <laughs> and the thing is, they're saying that the Art McNally watches a TV replay, and that's how the th- whole game is decided. Now, that is what, uh, who's this from the Oakland Tribune? A guy called Joe Gordon, okay. who says that's a total fabrication. So I'm guessing a guy from the Oakland Tribune is in the press box at the time, so we've got to go with his opinion on that one. And by the way, I would think he would be a little biased towards Oakland, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's pretty credible as far as I'm concerned. Jim, yeah. this happens in 1972. Instant replay doesn't come in until way, way later. We're barely in the television age in 1972. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it should have been <laughs> the moment where you, everybody went, wow. This is what we can do with technology. We should be using it, incorporating it, but it doesn't. It, it goes, what, 30 happen. more years? It goes 30 more years. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that, that, that this play might have been part of the resistance to go? Because people were just like, see, now, if you, if you had done that when you were supposed to, Oakland would have won or what have you. It might have played an initial role, an infancy role in, the, in replay, but um, it wasn't till another 20 years later where they said, we're seeing at home what's going on on the field. Ah, Slow motion. Right. Every, you know, every... Every little frame, detail. Freeze frame. Right. And it's embarrassing that we're not getting it right official-wise. Yeah, Eric, th- Eric if, because I don't know how many cameras at a game, maybe 20. As a physicist, you're looking at the geometry of those cameras. You'll be thinking, where do I get my best shots? Is there a kind of theory that allows the cameras to grab the best moments to get the best analysis and not, in the end, undermine the officials? And by the way, in, on, just as an addendum to that same question, Eric, do the cameras because you're looking at it through a lens, do they distort the play and of what you're seeing on screen in any way, shape, or form? 
Sure. I mean, you see the little tiny cameras that are in the, the pylons in the end zone. Mm. And, you know, when the ball is coming in very close, uh, the closer it gets to the camera, then you can have a more of a uh, kind of a distorted look of the image. And absolutely, that plays a role. Uh, the cameras sometimes are moving. Uh, you have a camera on a guy wire up over the, the field. Yeah. And as the camera is moving, you have to take that into consideration when you're watching the replay. Uh, sometimes you have a, a, a cameraman actually holding a camera moving. Uh, even the ones that are stationary that are holding it with their hand can jiggle a little bit, and sometimes that can even influence the, the video that you see. Oh, wow. So we, the one that's suspended is the spider cam. I know I didn't come up with that, man. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> then you've got the steady cam, the big guy all braced in with the framework who's running along. How long do you think before we get drones and as a physicist, are they going to be the answer for cameras and technology of the future? Well, everything else is becoming uh, more and more automated, so I wouldn't be surprised if we start getting uh, tracking devices in footballs and the cameras that can track them uh, and maintain an actual uh, image of the football throughout the play, which is what we didn't have any immaculate reception. You can't right. see the ball on the ground or, right. off, or slightly off. So one of the things that uh, comes about when people actually look at these plays is the fact that the instant replay whether it existed then or not, which it didn't, but even if it did, mm. it solved nothing. And it would have solved nothing because the people who look at it on one side, who are on one side, they think one thing. The people who are on another side, they think another thing. If you're a Steelers fan, it's the immaculate reception. Mm -hmm. If you're a Raiders fan... It's it, a ripoff. It's the immaculate deception. Yes. And nice. this is the whole aspect of... You speak to one fan, you speak to players on one team, you get one answer and one answer only. Touchdown, why are we even arguing? Right. You go to the other side, Same completely thing. think. But this has... Some science involved in it. And that's why we have none other than Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson himself. Hey. And he's going to talk about the science of confirmation bias because normally we have Neil talking about astrophysics. But uh, in my travels with Neil, what I have uh, found out about him is he knows everything. Yes. So, no, I'm just... <laughs> everything. <laughs> he, he hates when I say that. <laughs> hey, but you know what, Neil, you know, in the last segment, we heard you wait, talk... Wait, just to be clear, Go Chuck, yeah. just because someone knows more than you doesn't mean they know everything. <laughs> in my book, it does. <laughs> you know, so in the last segment, we uh, we heard you talking to uh, quarterback Ryan Fitzpatrick, and you asked yeah. him, uh, you know, you said we were polling quarterbacks about the immaculate reception, and then you said uh, it's, it's funny that you just basically account this up to luck. You have no problem doing that. And he was like, I wish I could have had that kind of luck. Um, so two things. One, I want to talk to you uh, as a scientist. Uh, do you believe in, in luck as a scientist? Is there such a thing as luck? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm a fan of the adage, luck comes to the, to the well-prepared. So the people who are luckiest are the ones who not only see an opportunity, but exploit it and use it to their advantage, which then to others who did not see the opportunity, it comes across as something called luck. Uh -huh. So uh, another reason why we even think luck exists as a thing uh -huh. is there is no hardly any training in probability and statistics in our K through 12 educational system. And so we are woefully unprepared to understand statistics of things. Mm -hmm. uh, not only that, to understand things like the chances of winning a lottery ticket, the chances of, of um, uh, and, and what's curious is the lottery <laughs> in most states 
feeds the educational system. So, <laughs> Which, if you took oh, advantage of the educational oh, oh, system, oh. you would never play the lottery. <laughs> well, exactly. So it's in the lottery's best interest to make sure that they don't teach probability and statistics. Otherwise, no one would be playing the lottery. Um, so, no, I'm not uh, convinced that there's such a thing as luck. There's just the random statistics that we interpret it as some kind of directed um, reality. Can okay. you, Neil, design a play using a certain element of probabilities, thinking, yeah, this is how we do it in this particular part of the game, which is desperation time? Yeah, so baseball does that all the time. Uh -huh. That's why they'll swap out a batter for one who can bunt a little better. They'll swap out a runner mm -hmm. who can run better on that pitcher. Right. Uh, so... Uh, the, the difference is baseball has all this dead time between plays yeah. to discuss the statistics of these things. Uh, in football, you don't quite get the full discussion time available to you. Um, but uh, you can, in principle, run something purely statistically based on the history of outcomes given a, a, a situation. It's right. well known, for example, that teams should go for, if you haven't already covered this, uh, they should go for... Uh, first down on third down more often than they do. Right. Uh, because some of those times they will make first down and some of those they'll score the touchdown. But there and, are there are definite times you're saying that the statistic the statistical outcome favors going for third down I mean going for fourth down and whatever, but the coach will not do it. Right, because the, it depends on the coach's awareness and sensitivity to the role of statistics in their lives and in their decision making. Mm -hmm. And somebody, you now, if you went everything by statistics, then I guess you don't need a coach. So mm -hmm. the coach might tell you, I don't want to speak for them, but I bet they'll say, no, this is my life experience I'm invoking here. Well, that life experience is informed by some statistical history of outcomes given a situation. We get it. If they get it wrong, then we all become Monday morning quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. We're now Tuesday morning quarterbacks. If they if they get it right, then everyone praises their insight and their ingenuity. And again, this is the this is where people will interpret luck as skill when in fact it would have really just been luck. Gotcha. So, so we get sorry, to the philosophical the, question. The statistics of the situation, uh, uh, working out the full statistical distributions of outcomes. All right. So if we get to the philosophical point where is the game better for the human error or do we take human error out and just stick a computer on the sideline and just punch in an algorithm and off we go? I, I got to say, of course, baseball has passed that. And I kind of miss... The, the coach kicking dirt on the shoes of the umpire <laughs> and, you know, just all in the face like this. Yeah. We've seen these. I, I, a little bit of me misses that. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It's kind of perverse, actually, because <laughs> uh, you want the truth to manifest. And ideally that way. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm For me, sport is human mm -hmm. and decision making is human. And why, why do you, you know, uh, why? If everything were just the judgment of a referee, um, excuse me, if, if there were no judgments of referees, everything mm -hmm. was camera determined, like I said, you wouldn't need the referee. Yeah. And it's so funny. But even some human element. I got one. Here you go. go uh, every fifth play is the opposite of what the 
referee calls. How about that? You just throw in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're messing with things now. Yeah, that's now funny. you are that's playing a, with science. The ran, you see the ran, the random bizarro call. <laughs> exactly. Random that's bizarro that's call. All right. So now let me ask you this. Let's talk about this for a second, Neil. And uh, this is one of the main reasons we wanted to have you is because when you look at this play, which is probably the most iconic play in football history mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Okay. Uh, everybody knows it. And I think it's because it is still to this day the most controversial football play. Despite the fact that it's been books written, there's been countless interviews done, there's been um, um, analysis uh, conducted ad infinitum. Yeah. But what happens is, irrespective of whatever the data may say, The people on one side who actually think that this was a good play, they come out seeing the video, seeing all the explanations, and they say it's a good play. The people on the other side who say that the Oakland Raiders were ripped off and that this should have never happened, they come out saying it should have never happened. They're all looking at the exact same thing, and and this is what I I wanted to get to you about. What is that, and do we see that, one, in science, and, uh, and, uh, you know, where else do we see that? So, yeah, so this is, uh, as you had hinted earlier, it's a form of confirmation bias, which is a very human thing. There are things we want to be true, and we will create a bubble around ourselves, receiving information that supports what we want to be true. And that bubble is kind of uh, is, is bulletproof against any piece of data, any thought, any commentary that might undermine your belief that it's true. And so it's so you have a filtering mechanism for information. And it's and it's in many cases, it's it's highly subliminal. You think you're making rational decisions, but in fact, you're not. And so this so now what you would need in the case of the Immaculate Reception is you invite in a space alien who doesn't really care, doesn't even understand anything Mm -hmm. to say, what does this look like to you? They, boy, that was an awesome catch. <laughs> then we're pretty good on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if the, if the alien says, wait a minute, that ball touched the ground, it shouldn't have. Uh, that, so what you want is an unbiased uh, observer. And, and space alien would be an extreme limiting case of that. It would. But uh, an unbiased <laughs> observer will have less, will be less susceptible to confirmation bias. And in science, of course, we, we, we know all about all, that's Confirmation bias is one of many, many biases. There's a whole Google page, a, a wiki page, very nicely prepared, talking about all the cognitive biases that we are victims of as humans. In science, we have slightly more awareness of that possibility within us, mm-hmm. but there's still the risk that our scientific results can have the bias of what we want. And so that's why it's a scientific result is not true until there's verification from competing factions. Mm-hmm. And I put out a result, and the press runs towards, oh, new understanding of the universe. No, that is an understanding of the universe waiting for confirmation. Gotcha. And once someone else does it, who has no risk of the same kind of bias I might in, in, uh, put in, someone who's a competing uh, researcher, mm-hmm. all manner of people, someone from another country with a different voltage out of the, out of the wall that powers the apparatus, if we all start getting the same result, then we know I was onto something and I was not subject to bias. But if people start getting different results from me, then people start looking to me and say, are you biased? 
Was there a blunder? And that's a demerit in my scientific standing. So we don't want to ever be victims of our own bias. We want to be the most critical viewers of our own work so that no one else puts it in our face. Gotcha. Very, very cool. Very cool. So now, now we speak, know. speaking of confirmation bias, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've seen the immaculate reception. Could you once and for all uh, settle this subject for us? <laughs> uh, so here's here's my reply. By the way, in the Pittsburgh airport, yeah, there's a mannequin of Franco, Franco Harris. Harris. Yes, yep, yeah, grabbing the ball right just before it's touching the ground. Right, mm-hmm. and like there is like there in the airport, and so so it's it's not only um, a it was not only a football play. It is now legend and elevated to the level of shrines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what that was. Um, so I think it's one of these plays where if it was not legit, it's so much more amazing and fun if it were. So let's just keep it that way. Gotcha. Gotcha. You should run for office. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Neil, thanks so much for joining us and lending your voice to this very important 44-year-old controversy. (laughs) Man, it's been that long because I I remember it. I think it's been that long. I think it's been that long. Thank you, as always. All right, guys. We'll catch you on another time. All right, buddy. Look forward to it. Thanks a lot. So, confirmation from the voice, the designated voice of the universe. Yes. It's in. We are going to take another break. So, question time. John Fuqua, the intended <laughs> receiver for Terry Bradshaw's pass, has a middle name. What is his middle name? Right, have Ooh. a think about that. The next question, the chief official on the day, the number one referee. What was his name? Yeah, right. Little brain teaser for you. Mm. We will have the answers when we come back. Get thinking. See you shortly. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing, Playing with, with Science. Science. Yes, it is. And we've been talking about the Immaculate Reception, the most famous play in NFL history. It certainly is. And it has already caused a number of debates, <laughs> some of which have not been settled, some of which have. Right, two questions before the break. Um, here are your answers. I asked you the nickname of John Fuqua from the Steelers, Frenchie. Frenchie. Always known as Frenchie. And the chief official, the senior man, the head Honcho, the big cheese, whichever you want to call him, Fred Swearingen was the man on the other end of the phone to NFL supervisor Art McNally. So, what a perfect name for a referee. I swear that was a call. I swear. Swearingen. <laughs> You're always going to find the humor, aren't you? I'm sir? going, I can't help it. Yeah, of course, yeah. why should you? Right, now let's turn towards... And we are nearly 50 years on from the Immaculate Reception, the legacy of this play. Yeah. I said in the introduction, it was the turning point for the Steelers and their franchise in the 70s. Absolutely. It turned the Raiders fans, the club, into Raiders versus not just the NFL, but the world. Absolutely. And that battle is still raging right now, but it's given us so many other legacies and thoughts with the change of the rules, instant replays, and all sorts of other things, as well as debates. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the uh, enduring legacies is just the fact that it's still 
such an iconic play, which I don't know, Jim, maybe you from a writer standpoint, I, I kind of feel like the name itself had a big part in us remembering mm. this play. I mean, not too many plays get a name. Like I remember uh, what was the San Francisco Super Bowl where uh, Montana and they called it the catch. Right. Never caught on. The catch never caught on, you know. And uh, you had the one with the Giants over the Patriots where Tyree coded on his head. On his head. Which is ridiculous. Right. Um, <laughs> and that, no one's ever even named that. Like, what they, they never even named it. Like, helmet catch or, you know what I mean? Uh, catch 42, I think they catch call it. Catch 42. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> what a lousy name. No wonder nobody, okay. nobody is like, you know. Uh, also, too, there wasn't any, there was some controversy surrounding that catch, too. Whether or not he acts, whether or not it, 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 it the ball hit the ground. The ground yeah. It was all about did it touch the ground. You asked about the phrase. Here we go. The phrase was first used on air by Myron Cope. Myron Coop. Yes, a Pittsburgh sportscaster who was reporting on the Steelers' <laughs> victory. And a Pittsburgh woman, Sharon Lovowski, called Cope the night of the game and suggested the name who, that was coined by one her friend, Michael Ord. So Cope says it, Ord comes up with it, and the rest you know is. It's history. Yeah. yeah, and it makes sense, you know. So, you know, here's the thing about this that um, I find fascinating. Here we are all these years later. We put out on Twitter and Facebook, you know, just kind of an alert. Like, hey, guys, uh, if you're a fan of the Immaculate Reception, um, give us your give us your thoughts. Yeah, join on the in. That's all we said. Give us your. I have five pages, five pages of quotes and thoughts from people online. Uh, here's uh, Warren Bush from Facebook says, it was terribly exciting, the play uh, leading up to the catch. It was an amazing day to watch this happen, uh, to tell whether or not the ball touched the ground during the catch or not. Um, today, we have so many camera angles with so much detail, they can analyze whether a catch was complete or incomplete with incredible precision. There is simply no way to tell if this catch was complete or incomplete by the video that's on hand. However, if you check out the statue in the Pittsburgh airport, I think it puts all doubts to rest. Okay, so clearly he's a... Uh, Does he mean the one of George Washington? <laughs> <laughs> or is it the one of Franco Harris? <laughs> yeah. So uh, here's another guy. Uh, Chris Larson from Facebook says this. Uh, it's it's Schrodinger's ball. Oh. Uh, look at this guy getting a little, little fit. You like that one, Eric? Schrodinger's ball. That's what he says. Uh, Cuter than Schrodinger's cat, I guess. <laughs> he says... It, uh, uh, he says... Uh, Go on, explain... Be, be, so, Eric, please, before you go on, explain go that whole Schrodinger. Yeah. Schrodinger uh, give us the Schrodinger anal uh, analogy. Well, the, the Schrodinger's cat idea was that you could have a cat simultaneously be in an alive and dead state. Uh, this was something that was uh, kicked around during the early days of quantum mechanics, uh, not knowing something and having only probabilistic interpretations. So uh, I think the, the football is the same idea. You know, was it above the ground or was it touching the ground? Was right. The idea. Right. Okay, was, so. it, was it touched? Was it not touched by the offensive player? So that's the Schrodinger's ball. So we like that to the, to the list of conspiracy theories. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he says, it was both a catch and not a catch <laughs> at the same time. Get over it. Oh. Schrodinger's ball. Chris Larson said that. Uh, here's a really cool, I got I got to give you guys the coolest, we got a little Twitter response, and I think it's the coolest Twitter response uh, that we got on the whole thing. This is from uh, Mark Cuban. And yes, that, that, Mark, that Mark Cuban. Cuban. <laughs> uh, billionaire NBA franchise owner 
Mark Cuban actually said this. I remember that moment. I was upset thinking we would lose. Went out to shoot some baskets, of course, and, and then came screaming into the room once I found out that they, that they had won. So how cool is that? that but see, that's it. A fan is All born. right, the players... The players will be upset or exhilarated, uh, euphoric, but the ripple effect of this 26 seconds has been amazing, and it's still finding its way out into the universe. So, so the thing is, Jim, there was a guy who has the ball from the Immaculate reception oh. and he dives into a ruck of people after the point after grabs it and he's still got it and it's locked in a safety vault and he lives in Pittsburgh and it goes to the Hall of Fame every now and again <laughs> and it's that sort of stuff that you just is bonkers but it touches people on such a level why do we follow sports it's just uh, it's the hair yeah, standing yeah. up on the back of your neck and and artifacts you know baseballs certain things you know we mm. keep for for keeps yeah for um, keepsakes yeah but uh, it's because we remember the moment it's not the yeah. it's not the ball it's did the, we see this yeah. franchise coming the Steelers franchise before this particular game they were awful that you know, good in, in I think it was sixty nine uh, <laughs> Bradshaw was benched wow um, and he was almost cut I believe um, maybe that's too strong but they were just horrendous and um this changed their fortune the raiders were like the uh you know they were like uh not america's team they were like the anti-america's team which i, uh, I think they still are <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, it's and a watershed moment for the steelers twisted the fates of both teams yeah yeah amazing really because the the, <laughs> the prize of beating the raiders on the day is a game against the Miami Dolphins. Now, Eric, you have a little bit of trivia that's attached to this particular day in Pittsburgh history. So the the game against Miami was played in Three River Stadium, right. uh, which was odd because Miami was undefeated at the time. And the, the Pittsburgh Steelers lost 21 to 17. But that, that same day, uh, the Pittsburgh and everyone else in the the sports world and the world in general lost Roberto Clemente to a plane crash. He was on his way to Nicaragua to help uh, victims of an earthquake, oh, and it was wow. just a, it was a sad, sad day. Sad day. Yeah, sad just, day. Yeah. Just well, just thirty eight years old, and uh, uh, he had, had his last hit in Major League Baseball was his three thousandth hit. Wow. So uh, he finished with three thousand on the nose, and. Uh, uh, the 31st of December in 72 is, a, is a, just an awful day in Pittsburgh history. Wow, wow. the magic of the numbers. Because I'm sure his own personal targets would have included 3,000. Yeah. yeah. And there he, he achieves it thinking, what else can I achieve? And then it's dramatically taken away. What a, what a sad day. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because uh, when you talk about sad days and you were talking about legacies, I, I actually transcribed. I sat and I listened to some of these uh, comments that these players made after this game. Mm. And it's fascinating the, 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 the kind of, I don't want to call it sour grapes, you know. But it's sour grapes. Yeah, but these guys, I mean, this really had an effect on them. Okay, so listen to uh, Phil uh, Villapiano, who was the linebacker for the Oakland Raiders uh, during that. These are his exact words, okay? I'm, I'm not making any of this up, and I did not embellish at all. I'm not all right. paraphrasing. Okay. All right, here it goes. Terry Bradshaw took the snap. 
I looked at him. I looked at Franco. I looked back at him again. Franco's doing nothing. He missed his block. <laughs> Bradshaw scrambles out of the way. Franco comes jogging down the field, half speed. He's my man, so I'm jogging half speed with him. I saw Bradshaw throw the ball. I shot over to help make the tackle. Meanwhile, Franco had just drifted over there somewhere, and it goes right to him. Had I been as lazy as Franco, that ball would have come to me waist high. Now I spin around. I can still make the play. Nick Macon, no one would ever remember this guy. They're tight end. Smart player. Dives in the back of my legs. What's he got to lose? They're going to lose the game anyway. The biggest clip ever. No clip call. I remember laying on the ground, watching Franco turn down the sideline, just not believing. Just can't believe. What happened? <laughs> that's an angry dude. <laughs> yeah. And you don't need a yeah. linebacker that's angry. <laughs> Not at all. Oh. It's, so, it's so funny, like so many fakes. But see, that would have been in the locker room just after. And the, 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 the adrenaline and the, and the anger will just be festering. Terrible. Saying if I just was as really. lazy as he had been. Oh, yeah. Caught that. Oh, no, you don't hold back. <laughs> at that moment, you don't care at all. As an athlete that's just lost right. a game like this, so you just let it all out, baby. Yeah, it's funny. You know, Jack Tatum, who you know, of course, he's at the center of the controversy. Mm. Here's a guy, you know, whether did you touch the ball, did you not? Now, uh, originally, Tatum was immediately after he said, you know, hey, you know, uh, I, I didn't touch the ball. But then uh, there's other interviews where you hear him say, I really couldn't tell you if I hit the ball or not. So, you know, it's here's a guy who, you know, uh, once again, uh, you know, so many fates turned on this game that I think the one that really the quote that got me the most was Frenchie Fuqua, who was the guy who. Franco Harris kind of supplanted as the savior of Pittsburgh. Yep. Because, you know, Frenchie was the guy that everybody was looking to to be the big hero. This is what he actually said years after this game, years and years after this game. He says, it was my opportunity to be a hero, to be lifted up on everybody's shoulders. I'm looking in, I'm looking into, uh, uh, Bradshaw's blue eyes the whole time. I know he's going to throw it to me. He ducks. He comes up. He throws the ball. Well, I look to the sideline and, <laughs> he runs down the sideline with my hundreds of thousands of dollars that I would have made if I would have caught that ball and scored. I'm saying to myself, God, I blew it. <laughs> oh, how messed up is that, man? Well, let me. How do you spell team again? Is it the one with the I in it? Yep. <laughs> yeah, team is the one with the I in it, and the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But lost. then again, just That's, afterwards, he he said that he'd spoken to one person and one person only, Frenchie, okay. Frenchie. and that was the old owner Art Rooney, and he said, "I told him what happened," and Rooney's reply was, "Frenchie, just keep it immaculate." So he's never spoken about that again in terms of what actually happened. Wow. Yeah, well, it doesn't seem like it's a happy memory for him anyway. No, so. he's, he's, he's monetarized that whole event, hasn't he? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, for oh, sure. Man. Hey, well, this has been fun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've really enjoyed this. I mean, a little walk down memory lane. Not that I was there. Okay, let's happened. do just a, a straw poll. Your opinion, was it or not? Um, I, I think Tatum, it, it went off his shoulder pads. I don't think Fuqua touched it. I think it went off of Tatum, and, and, and it's, the play is what it is. Immaculate. Immaculate. Eric. 
As a scientist, I don't have enough data to make an, uh, a perfect assessment, so I'm going to I'm going to say I I just don't have a gut feeling on it. <laughs> all right, all right, that was very scientific. Cannot of you, deny the man his principles, and he stuck with it. I think it's a touchdown. I cannot rule on Franco Harris because I don't think anyone can, apart from the man himself. Yeah, there you have it. And yeah. what we do say is all respect to the officials. Because they call it basically there and then in real time. Yeah, it's a tough job. Yeah. Tough job. I'll never forget in high school, we used to do a thing where a ref would make a, a, a bad call and uh, everybody would chant, the ref beats his wife. The ref beats his wife. Now, that means nothing here. I just thought I'd share that. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Professor Eric Goff, thank you so much for your insight into the physics of the Immaculate Reception. Jim Brennan, thank you for being in the studio with us. It's been an absolute pleasure for your memories and thoughts. I'm Gary O'Reilly. I'm Chuck Nice. And this has been Playing With Science. If you have a thought on the Immaculate Reception, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with us. If it's an Immaculate Deception, then there's nothing going to change your mind. We look forward to your company soon. Bye for now. <laughs>